So, Father, that is our declaration today that this church is about you, that you are the center of it all. It's not about a person. It's not about a personality. It's not about a gifting. It's not about a group of people. It's not about our desires. It's not about our wants. It's not about our agenda. It's about you, Jesus. It's about your word. It's about your Holy Spirit. It's about your Father. You are in the center of it all. So, Lord God, we do ask forgiveness, Lord God, for thinking that we own your church or for thinking that your church orbits around me. It's you. It's you. It's you. And I think, Lord God, of anyone in this room, I need that reminder first and foremost. This is not my church. It's yours. And I have the privilege, Lord God, to serve in it. But I do pray, Lord God, that even now as I prepare to preach your word, that people could be able to look at me and see Jesus. And if they can't look at me and see Jesus, that they would look around me and still see Jesus. But Lord God, protect your people from a faith that resides on a person. Our faith must rest on nothing less than Jesus, your blood and your righteousness. So do that. Pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground today. You would give us ears to hear, that you would give me a clear mind, that you would loose my tongue. To that end, Lord God, that someone in this house today would get saved. That some wayward sinner would come home. That people would see their sin and would repent. Add to your church today. It's your church. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you have your Bibles, I want, you to, encourage, I want to encourage you to meet me in Jonah chapter 4, fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. I want to also remind you that today we are uh, doing a membership class. It's my first time being a part of one, so I'm actually going to be in it, joining the church myself. I'm excited to do that, along with sharing a few words as well. Uh, If you're interested in checking out Abundant Life and what it looks like to be a member at this church, I want to encourage you to come and to participate in that. If for no other reason, then there's free lunch. Amen. Uh, But I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Also, I want to encourage you to come back next week. Uh, We will begin a new series on the most valuable resource we have. It's not money. You can lose money in the stock market and grow it back. But I want to talk about the most valuable resource we have. It is time. If you lose time, you ain't getting it back. So we're going to begin this series next week that will go throughout the whole month of May. We'll be in Psalm 90 next week when Moses declares, Lord, teach us to number our days. And we'll look at what that looks like. The next Sunday is Mother's Day. We'll invite you back for that. I'll be giving a special Mother's Day message. We'll also have gifts for every mama in the house. And then a handful of gifts for some specially selected mamas. Um, Mamas, I want to encourage you, come on out. Get all that you can. Because our day is coming. 
So I want to encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, then we'll pick back up on the 15th uh, with, uh, with our series uh, as well. Uh, I want to also encourage you, before we get in the text, um, pray for me. Uh, I grew up in a little, little Baptist church on the south side of Atlanta, and we would do prayer times, but, but there would always be a time of the prayer where you could just solicit what we would call unspoken requests. Anybody ever go to a church where you did unspoken requests? Um, it, it was pretty much, I need prayer, but I ain't sharing my business. That's what, that's what unspoken means. Uh, well, I have an unspoken request. If you could pray for me at about 4.30 this afternoon. Uh, just lift me up. Uh, ain't nothing wrong. I ain't going to jail or any of that. All right. Some of y'all, what's wrong with pastor? Ain't nothing wrong, but I just need you to pray for me. I ain't going to tell you what my business is. Just pray for me at 430 this afternoon. Everything's good. Just keep me in your prayers. Jonah chapter four, pick me up in verse one. The Bible says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Make a note of this phrase. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. This brother is mad, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it uh, come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But, verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, hmm, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, and you did, and not, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle, the word of the Lord. In the 1990s, I read a book that changed my life. Of the 5,000 books I had in my library until I moved to New York, my wife made me give them all away because we didn't have no room in our apartment. But of the 5,000 books that I had in my library, there were only three that I would read more than once. Uh, one was a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. I would always read that book. Two, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. But this third book is a book 
that I would always come back to. I don't know if you've read it. If you have not, please do yourself a favor and read it. It is Philip Yancey's classic, What's So Amazing About Grace? What's so amazing about grace? This book will captivate your attention from the first page because the book begins with a story of a prostitute who figured out one day that she could make more money renting out her toddler daughter in one hour than what she could make in a whole night. She did this for a while until she finally encountered a group of Jesus-loving Christians who did not come to her in condemnation, who did not look at her with disgust and disdain, but who came to her in the way of Jesus filled with grace. They talked to her of what it meant to follow Jesus Christ. And then at the end of explaining what Christianity looks like, they then said these words, we, we want to invite you to our church. We would love to have you come to our church. And then she said these words, church, church, why would I ever go there? They would only make me feel worse than I already feel. This woman's words was tragically true. She had sadly yet accurately diagnosed most churches in our country today. That tragically most churches are known for a lot of things and yet grace ain't one of them. Church Church, why would I ever go there? They, they would only make me feel worse than what I already do. Church in America is known for a lot of things, but grace ain't one of them. I say this is tragic. I say this is sad because if you understand anything about the way of Jesus, Jesus was known for grace. It was the calling card of his ministry. In fact, John says in John chapter 1, when I first saw Jesus, before I even had a conversation with him, what I simply observed is I saw a man full of grace and truth. You follow the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. He was a man who incarnated and embodied grace. In John chapter 4, he sits down at high noon with a woman at a well. A Jewish man did not talk to a Samaritan woman. Jews went around Samaria, but Jesus stops in Samaria and sits down with her in broad daylight. You read texts like Luke, Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at a party at the religious Wright's house, the Pharisee's house, the moral majority's house, and he lets a prostitute wipe his feet. Grace. He lunches with tax collectors like Zacchaeus. Grace. And he saved you and me 
not because we grew up on the right side of town, not because of the degrees we had, not because the choices we made, not because mama was safe, not because daddy was safe, not because you deserved it, but he saved you by a single solitary thread called grace. And the problem with most Christians is we get saved for any amount of time and we develop spiritual short-term memory loss and we forget that the very thing that got us into the kingdom is what keeps us in the kingdom, grace. I want to fire a shot today. I'm the new guy on the block, but I just want to say this. During my time here, Abundant Life, we're going to be known as being a place of grace. This is going to be a place, man, where I'm hoping people who don't know Christ can come in and, and before they come to Christ, they didn't get the memo on how long their skirt should be and they didn't get the memo on when to stand and they didn't get their memo on when to sit down. They didn't get the memo on all that. And I just want to, I just want to say something. If I hear of any Christian in here castigating people who don't know better but who just want to come in here and get a word, I'm going to do to you what Jesus did to the Pharisees. He came down harder on on the legalists. Now hear me, grace is not ignorance. Grace is not patting somebody on the back and justifying their sin. Grace is not patting somebody on the back and saying, you do you, you continue to have that affair, you continue to tell that lie, you continue to do, you know, that's not grace. John says, when I saw Jesus, I saw a man full of grace and truth. Grace without truth is compromise. Truth without grace is condemnation. I'm going too fast. I'm going, I'm going, going too fast. Grace without truth is compromise. Truth without grace is condemnation. Now hear me, all of us are naturally weighted one side to the other. Some of us are so truth-oriented we're like a bull in a, China, in, a, in, a, in a China shop. We just keeps it real. And you run over people. Need, need I remind us, Paul says, yes, yeah, speak the truth, package it in love. And, and by the way, be careful with that verse because when you get into a conflict with somebody, initially you don't have truth. What you have is perspective. Golly. When you go to confront someone, you don't have truth. You have perspective. What you're trying to do is get truth, and the way to get truth is to not make statements, is to ask questions. I'm going too fast. So that grace, what makes grace so phenomenally special is that grace is not blind. It sees it, yet it covers it. Grace covers. Grace sees the sin, yet it forgives the sin. Grace sees the failure, yet it forgives the failure. Grace acknowledges the misunderstanding happened. Grace acknowledges the incident, and yet it still says 70 times 7. I forgive you. Why? Because we fundamentally understand that the epitome of hypocrisy is for me to have been saved by grace, but to withhold that grace from others. 
God did not save us to be cul-de-sacs of grace. He saved us to be boulevards, avenues, not dead-end streets. So I want to make a clarion call, and I just want to remind us of grace. Now, if there's one word that sums up Jonah chapter 4, it's grace. As our passage opens up, Jonah's ticked off. Now, I'll come back and I'll explain why he's ticked off. But our passage falls right on the heels of God showing a monumental move of grace. He sends Jonah to these pagan people who have been oppressing the people of God. And he says, Jonah, I'm going to use you as a vessel of grace. Jonah walks into the city, yet 40 days and you will be destroyed. And what does God do? He sees these people respond to the message by faith. They repent. They relent. They, uh, they sit in sackcloth and ashes and they fast. And God says, you know what? You have responded to the message by faith, I'm going to give you what, what, what we would call special, I will give you prevenient grace. So that God pours out his grace. One scholar tells us that, that what happens in Nineveh is the greatest revival in human history. 120,000 people, I love it, including the cattle, get saved. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, for you dog lovers, if you're looking for a text that says you know, whether or not my little animal is going to be in heaven, you might have something here, all right? The cattle get saved, all right? So God pours out his grace on this city. Now, the question is, how did God pour out his grace on this city? Well, he uses Jonah. Well, how did he use Jonah? Why did he use Jonah? Grace. God had called Jonah in Jonah chapter 1. I have an assignment on your life. Head due east to, to Nineveh. Jonah goes due west. Grace interrupts Jonah over and over and over again. He sends the storm. He oversees the lots. He hurls them into the sea. He appoints the fish. God's grace, and we learn God's grace does not let you do you. God's grace keeps coming after you and after you and after you and after you. That's grace. That's grace. So that sometimes grace can be uncomfortable. But watch this. So that the book of Jonah can be summed up in the word interruptions. And yet we learn that God's interruptions are never his eruptions. They are not the outbursts of an angry, petulant God. Instead, God's interruptions are instruments of his grace. So that God shows up, interrupts Jonah by grace... Doesn't stop there, so that Jonah, having received that grace, can now become an instrument or a vessel of grace to the people of Nineveh. So that what Jonah teaches us about an interruption is, when God interrupts us, it is a sign of his grace, and yet when he interrupts us by his grace, his interruptions are never ultimately about us. God interrupts our lives with grace so that we can now become vehicles and vessels of grace to others. So that when God interrupts you, the question is always, God, 
what are you trying to do, not just in me in the interruption, but through me in the interruption? A couple years ago, I did, I did lunch with a prostitute. I ain't feeling too much grace from you right now. Let, let, let me clarify that. Someone's like, clean that up, pastor. Let me, let me clarify that. She was an ex-prostitute, and there was 10 of us at the table. At the table, we're asking her her story. She says, I was addicted to heroin. I was a woman of the night. One day, a man comes up to me wanting to buy an hour of my time. It's pretty typical. We go to the hotel, and in the hotel, he says, I don't want anything to, to do with you in what way you think I want to do with you. He says, I just want to buy an hour of your time to tell you about Jesus Christ. By the way, I am not recommending that men to you as an evangelistic strategy. <laughs> Hear me, it's just an illustration. Don't do it. Your wife is not going, she ain't going to understand and she shouldn't understand. She shouldn't understand, all right? So don't take the illustration and run with it. It's just an illustration, right? So anyways, he tells her about Jesus Christ. She comes to faith in Jesus Christ. She then goes to rehab. By God's grace, she gets off of heroin. You know what she's doing now? She started a ministry to get prostitutes off the street, saved by God's grace, into church, off of drugs. What did this woman understand? She understood God interrupted me that night. And he saved me by grace. And I can't sit on that grace. I got to take that grace and I got to share that same grace with someone else. Listen to me. All of us in this room, we've been saved by grace. Stop sitting up there thinking that you dot every I and you cross every T. You don't dot every I and you don't cross every T. There's stuff God has delivered you from. There's stuff God has saved you from. There's stuff God has brought you through. And when God brings you through, don't just say he brought me through, but reach back by that same grace and ask to be used as an instrument to pull others through. So that... Jonah is a vehicle of God's grace because God had by his grace brought Jonah through. Now watch this. Look at verse 1. Now you would think, <laughs> I mean 120,000 people get saved. I should hope, you know, if, 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 if I walk into San Francisco and 120,000 people get saved, I should hope I'm happy about that. Jonah is not. The text says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, look at it with me, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord. Now, I'm just going to stop right here. Jonah is angry. I love it. In the Hebrew, that word angry means hot. Jonah's hot. And he's angry. Watch it now. And out of that anger, he talks to God. Now, I'm just going to stop right here. I don't know. I know I'm in California. I know I'm in a real progressive state. I, I, I know y'all do things differently here. I grew up down south in Georgia. And uh, um, we didn't talk to mom and daddy out of anger. 
I don't know how you do it in your house. I know y'all sophisticated. Y'all have the timeout ministry and y'all let y'all's kids talk to you any kind of way and all that other stuff, man. I remember one time when my kids were real little, we were at, I think it was a Models, uh sporting store there in Memphis. And we're watching this kid. He had to be like eight or nine years old, get into an exchange with his father. And his kid really wanted these cleats and this conversation was just going on and on and on and on and on. And finally they go to check out and the kid goes, dad, where are the cleats? And the dad's like, I told you, so I'm not getting you the cleats. And the boy kicked his father in the hind parts. And my kids were real little, like they were toddlers. And they looked at me like, is that okay? I was like, boy, you bet not ever. So I didn't grow up in a house like that. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't talk to mama and daddy out of anger. That's just not how we rolled. My parents were not interested in teaching us how to express ourselves at all. Anybody ever grow up in a house like that? You just, mom and daddy said it, you did it. At the most, I remember, I remember, you know, one time my mama, she said something to me I didn't like, and I went to my room, which happened to be at the other end of the house from the front room, and I went to the farthest corner of that room, and I just whispered, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. And mama's supernatural hearing kicked in. I heard that. So I didn't grow up in a house, man, where you just talk to God, talk to your parents out of, out of anger. And yet, watch this now, Jonah is angry and not once does God castigate Jonah for, for talking to him out of anger. He questions the validity of his anger. Do you do well to be angry? But not once does he tell Jonah that he's wrong for anger. I, I want to just bless you with this, in this parenthesis in the sermon real quick. First thing I want you to understand is the reason why God doesn't go off on Jonah for being angry, he only questions the validity of his anger, is because you need to know anger is not a sin. Did you know there's a verse tucked away in Ephesians that says, in your anger, do not sin? Which tells me it's possible to be angry, but to do so with what the Bible calls righteous indignation. Did you know that one of the, the attributes of God, one of the character traits of God, is actually wrath? If anger was a sin, God would not be holy. Did you know that Jesus got angry? Matthew chapter 21, he walks into the temple and overturns the table. If anger was a sin, Jesus was not an acceptable sacrifice. In fact, anger is oftentimes an indicator light of a healthy relationship. Because anger expresses what I care about. Fellas, if you do something and all your wife says is, okay. Okay. Sleep in a hotel. Pray she can't cook grits. The unhealthy person is the person who stuffs and stuffs and stuffs and never expresses it. That's not emotional health. Healthy relationships, we're able to go there without being disrespectful. I ain't gonna talk about your mama, although I could. I ain't gonna slam no doors. I ain't gonna cuss at you. But you need to know when you do this over here, it ticks me off. That's healthy. Now here's the other thing. God can handle your anger, but God is also omniscient, so he knows how you really feel whether or not you tell him. 
So please notice, God ain't tripping off of Jonah's anger. He's questioning the validity of his anger. Now here we go. Why is Jonah angry? Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God. Jonah says, God, here's why I'm angry. I'm angry because of your grace. This text teaches us three very unsettling truths about grace. First thing I want you to understand about grace is like my friend Pastor Tulian Chavigian says, grace is insulting. Let me unpack it for us. Grace is insulting. Jonah is upset not because he received grace. I'll come back to this in a few moments. In chapter 2, he was praising God for grace. Jonah is okay when he gets grace. Jonah is not okay when people he don't like gets grace. Now I'm going to work on that. That's many of us. We want grace when it comes to us. Not just to the person I don't like. So Jonah has a problem with grace, not with him being the recipient, but he's got a problem with folk who he does not like receiving grace. Why is that? The reason why grace is insulting is that you and I live in what's called a meritocracy. Let me work on it. When I use the word meritocracy, I am talking about a society that is for the most part predicated on earning. It is an equation society. Our society is a meritocracy. It fundamentally says, you do good things over here, you get good things over there. Tomorrow afternoon, Brother Arshel will uh, we'll go to the airport, he'll drop me off, I'll um, walk in through the Delta section, I won't stand in the standard line, I'll go through the special expedited line for Sky uh, Club people, um, um, and then I'll go through that line real quickly, then I'll go through security real quickly through a special line, I'll get through security, and then I'll go to the Delta Sky Club if I have time. I'm a member of the Sky Club, never paid a dime for the Sky Club, but I'll sit there and enjoy free Wi-Fi, a few Biscoff cookies, have a bowl of soup, all that for free, then when that that's over. I've already checked my ticket. I got the free business class upgrade back to JFK. Don't have to pay a dime for it. Now, why all this special treated treatment? They didn't give me this special treatment because they just want to bless me. They gave me this special treatment because I'm a million miler with Delta. I have diamond status with Delta. Delta is fundamentally saying, you've treated us well over here. You've used us as your exclusive carrier over here. You've accrued these miles over here. You've done good things over here. So we're going to bless you with good things over here. That's the meritocracy. I've talked to many of you. 
Uh, many of you have heard your stories, man. You've got a lot of education. You've gone to great schools, great universities. You've gotten wonderful degrees. You've gotten the MBAs, the EDDs, the PhDs. Now you're living in one of the most desirable places in the country to live in, and you're enjoying, many of you, a wonderful lifestyle because if I just read your story enough by the world standards, you have mastered the principles of the meritocracy. You've done good things over here. Now you're reaping wonderful things over here. It's great. Now here's the problem with grace. Grace doesn't operate that way. Grace does not play by the rules of the meritocracy. In fact, grace blows the equation up. Grace says, you did bad over here, but I'm still going to bless you over here. Grace oftentimes is like Monopoly. I love the game of Monopoly. Love to play the game. Absolutely enjoy the game of Monopoly. I love, you know, accruing wealth and buying houses and hotels, and I'm very competitive, and I love it when you land on my property and you got to pay me all this rent. I love bankrupting people. I love negotiating deals. I love Monopoly. There's a sickness there, I know. But here's one thing I've never done at the end of Monopoly. I've never taken Monopoly money and gone to Bank of America. They would look at me like I was crazy. Why? Because what the teller at Bank of America would say to me is, Monopoly money only has, only has value in the kingdom of Monopoly, but Monopoly money outside that kingdom in the kingdom of this world has no value. Hear me, your PhD brings value in the meritocracy of the world, but when it comes to the kingdom of God, your PhD don't mean a thing. Only grace does. Your PhD doesn't bring value. Your virginity doesn't bring value. The moral choices you make does not bring value. Your zip code does not bring value. The only thing that matters is grace. That's why the Pharisees were so ticked off at Jesus. Now, what do you mean? I've gone to all this school. I've memorized all these commandments. I've done all these things. And here you are saying that this prostitute is closer to the kingdom than I am? It's grace. So what grace should do is it should humble you. Stop acting like you're all that, that you're better than people because you drive a certain car. Because you live in a certain neighborhood. That's like bragging that you've got the corner suite on the Titanic. Any given moment, God will say, give me back my breath. And we shall behold him face to face. And the only thing that matters ain't your resume is did you know Jesus? Not did you know calculus, but did you know Jesus? We call that grace. Now for the ouch moment. Jonah is angry. And he's angry because God has blessed people he does not like. Who has he blessed? People of Nineveh. That's right. Nineveh is a part of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was one of the most violent empires ever. They skinned people alive. They called it flaying. They came up with the um, ancient um, uh, torture mechanism called crucifixion. This was Nineveh. 
Nineveh is a part of the Assyrian regime. The Assyrians would end up oppressing the people of God, the nation of Israel. Jonah is ticked off because God had blessed their oppressors. Nineveh is the social equivalent of the KKK or the Nazi regime or ISIS. God saves ISIS. What does God do? God, first of all, says, do you do well to be angry? Now, now let, let, let me just teach you something about God. When God asks questions in the Bible, it ain't because he's lacking information. <laughs> let's, just, let's just get that out the way. I, I, I call these, um, I hate to say it this way, kind of dumb mama questions. You remember growing up, you'd be slouching, and your mama would look at you and say, now, how are you sitting? And you want to say, you looking at me, ain't you? <laughs> but something in you says, I better not go there. Now, my, watch. Mama didn't ask that question because she didn't know, because she didn't have every. She's just trying to point something out to you. God's not trying to get information he doesn't have. He's trying to point out Jonah's sin. Now, what now happens is masterful. He said, oh, you're angry with me for blessing people who don't deserve it, so you're in sin, so I'm going to appoint a plant while you're hot. I love it. You're hot, angry. You're hot. So I'm going to point a plant that's going to give you shade. While you're hot, in sin, I'm going to bless you. Now the punchline. Verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? There's a guy by the name of Dr. James Cone. He's the father of modern-day black liberation theology. James Cone teaches up the street from me uh, with Dr. Cornell West at Union uh, Seminary there, right on the campus of Columbia University. And Dr. James Cone came up with a landmark book in the late 60s, early 70s called God of the Oppressed. And he fundamentally said that God is only a God of the oppressed. What Dr. James Cone, a black man, was reacting to was the abuse of some whites during the civil rights movement. But his point is totally unbiblical. What this text teaches us is God is not just the God of the oppressed. He's also the God of the oppressor. Uh, I want you to hear me. God did not just die for Israel. He died for these people who were oppressing them in Nineveh too. God did not just die for your ex who committed adultery and bankrupted you. He died for you too and that ex. God did not just die for the abused. He died for the abuser too. It's hard for me to say this as a black man. 
God did not just die for Medgar Evers and Emmett Till and those who were lynched. He also died for the lynch mob. God did not just die for the sexually harassed. He also died for those who did the harassing. Parenthesis. Grace is not the absence of justice. I'm not saying that pedophiles should not go to jail. They should go to jail. But grace can forgive while I prosecute. But grace leaves no room for vengeance. For vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. probably shouldn't go here. I'm going to go here real quick. And I'm going to come out. I'm the new guy here. This church has been through a lot. It's been through a church split. cannot speak intelligently on this. I wasn't here. But let's say, for argument's sake, let's say, they, the people that left, church that started, let's say they were completely wrong and we were completely right. If I understand this text right, God doesn't love this church any more than he loves that one. The hard thing about grace How do you respond when God gives grace to people who've hurt you? Jonah says, I'm angry. I'm hot. Thank you, children, for having my back. Final thing I want to teach you about grace. Grace is insulting. Grace is for the oppressed and the oppressor. Thirdly and finally, let's go home on this. Grace is revealing. If you ever want to know the true condition of your heart, 
how do you respond when God shows grace to people who've wronged you? Grace is like a colonoscopy. I never had one. It's coming. But I've never, I've never heard my mom and daddy go, praise the Lord, tomorrow I get one. They're invasive. They're uncomfortable. But they're necessary to see what's going on on the inside. If you want to know what's going on the inside of your heart, get a picture right now in your mind of a person who's wronged you. And imagine God blessing them. Let, let's go back to that situation, that, that church. Let's just say, for argument's sake, they wronged us completely. Let's just say, for argument's sake, we were right, they were wrong. Now imagine God says, I want that church to be 20,000 people. And I want that pastor to be blessed beyond measure. And Brian, the conferences you used to speak at, he gonna speak at. <laughs> 